Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with us another Thursday evening where we have the privilege to reflect upon this great topic of theology of the body. If you are tuning in by way of podcast and you are joining us from the countries of uh, Brazil, uh, Chile, Argentina, Malaysia, uh, Italy, England, France, and Spain, uh, Mexico, we welcome all of you. And again, it is an honor that you are taking time out of your schedule to join us here in the friendly confines of Chico, California. And uh, I'm excited for this evening because I do have uh, Chris Seibert and Ivan Mora uh, back with me here in the studio. Again, they have been uh, joining me probably every third week. So guys, it is great to have you with me this evening. Good to be back, Joe, and I feel very American when you use terms like friendly confines. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to be back. (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. So um, we are in, uh, guys, chapter four of The Love That Satisfies, a chapter that has us looking at the meaning of true eros. And I thought I was going to get a lot farther into this chapter last week, but I really didn't get that far. So uh, we are, uh, I believe, on page 63 of The Love That Satisfies. And again, for our listeners, if you are tuning in for the first time, uh, the book The Love That Satisfies is a reflection on the first half of uh, our Emeritus Pope Benedict XVI's first encyclical, God is Love. Okay, so the first half of that great encyclical he focused in on the relationship between eros and agape, between you know, man's erotic love and divine sa- sacrificial love. So this is what we have been about over the last uh, 11 or 12 weeks or, or so. So um, with that, uh, page 63, Chris, if you can get us going. Agape expresses the experience of a love which involves a real discovery of the other, moving beyond the selfish character that prevailed earlier. Love now becomes concern and care for the other. No longer is it self-seeking, a sinking into the intoxication of happiness. Instead, it seeks the good of the beloved. It becomes renunciation, and it is ready and even willing for sacrifice. You know, there's so much beauty on that just one excerpt. And uh, I wanted to point this up to the part that says, Instead, it seeks the good of the beloved. What is the greatest good that you can long for somebody? Mm. Heaven. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yep, that's you can't right. love anyone more than wanting heaven for them. I actually shared this with a group of young adults in San Diego one time. I gave a talk on Theology of the Body. And this young man came to me after the talk. And he says, you know, I really like how that sounds. Like, I understand it. But how can you one heaven for another person and lead them closer to heaven if you yourself are not mm-hmm. or you do not feel like you're going to heaven. Mm-hmm. And so I want to start with that because one in heaven for the other, it's the greatest way that we can show our love. That's right. Amen. Yeah, you know, and, and you highlight really the, the quintessential point of all Christianity, really. 
How can we will the good of the other if we first ourselves are not taking care of our business, right? And this, of course, is the in God for other moment, the conversion, you know, so as to be in mission. This is why Benedict XVI uses that language, ready and willing. Mm -hmm. I think that is very important because when you start using that language, that is the language of disposition, you know, and that word was front and center for John Paul II uh, post-Vatican II. It was front and center for John Paul II for the new evangelization. He went home to his home diocese. He, he writes this work where he focuses in on this phrase, the interior attitude of faith. What is the interior attitude of faith? Well, it is to be in relationship with God, but not yet in action. Okay, well, what is that? Well, that's Mary. This Sunday, guys, we are going to hear that passage... Luke 1, verses 26 to 38. This is the Annunciation. This is that great angelic salutation. Okay, she was disposed. She was not doubting the angel. No, she was seeking understanding. Zechariah was doubting, right? Mm -hmm. You can't do this. Mary, how will you do this? Okay, when you really get underneath the Latin there. She's disposed. So she's the icon of this interior attitude of faith. Maybe by way of analogy, you, uh, <laughs> before we came on air here, Chris, you were talking the stuff of baseball. <laughs> so, well, let us consider the closer role or anyone who is in the bullpen, right? If, if you don't know the game of baseball, every team has a pitching staff and, and each team is going to have five, six, maybe seven uh, guys who are in the bullpen. And basically they need to be ready at a moment's notice they will have needed to prepare themselves to be ready at any moment. Now, in most sports, in most positions, most athletes and players who play those positions uh, know what they are going to do. Yes, they need to be spontaneous in, in how they go about their craft to be the best ball player, but there's something unique to a pitcher, especially one who comes out of the bullpen. They have to be disposed. They have to be ready. They have to be prepared when they get that call. huh? <laughs> the Blessed Virgin Mary got that call, the greatest right. call in human history. Okay, so again, maybe, maybe an analogy that doesn't justify the greatness of Mary's yes, but an analogy that nonetheless, I think, highlights the relevance of being ready at, at moment's notice. And we acquire this disposition by contemplating the icon of what Pope Benedict XVI describes there, huh? The icon of agape in our crucified Lord. Because our crucified Lord is the highest example of what this sacrificial love looks like. So when we contemplate the meaning of this, what do we do? We go deeper into his love. We receive this love. The receiving of this love is where the disposition is acquired. And then in turn, we live in this love. So circling back to what your friend said, if we can uh, be reconciled with God, receive this love, and live in this love, we can be that person we need to be to aid in that process of bringing our loved ones to heaven. And Joe, I think um, in, in bringing up Our Lady, that moment was a manifestation of her life to that point. It was a, wasn't, she's, she's not just qualities. Mm -hmm. She's not just willingness. She's not just humility. She is all of those qualities that make her who she is, in addition to who God created.
created her to be, what her mission was. A little bigger than the rest of our missions, mm-hmm. but it really points to something that Christopher West starts to break open in this, which is we are the integration of our history, our experiences, and who God created us to be, our souls, our mm-hmm. personhood. Mm-hmm. And the... Uh, you know, that ties up with the paragraph you just read because it says, Agape expresses the experience of a love which involves a real discovery of the, the other. Mm-hmm. And in that discovery of who that other person is, not just a collection of body parts, mm-hmm. not just a personality, all those things are part of it, but that deeper understanding of the other as a person with a unique soul made in God's image and likeness give us a kind of love that is more God-like and more mm-hmm. fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love by its definition, as we read in this book, and I'm beginning to learn more, it cannot turn inward. By its very nature, it has to reach out. You know, the discovery of the other is what the definition of love is. It's mm-hmm. seeking the other, the essence of the other, not just, you know, their qualities, mm-hmm. but the very person, the personhood. Well, and doesn't it in, in Genesis, it says that Adam knew Eve and they knew each other. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. of course, that's referring to, it has to be referring to more than just they had sex. Oh, yeah, certainly. Because when you give yourself to other, you're giving them more to, th- than just the physical part, but the whole person, the subject, the self. Eros infused by agape. That's what knowing each other was for Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If we really get down to it, that's my understanding anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is something that's at the heart of John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and certainly this is what's drawn out in Christopher West. (laughs) That knowledge comes with love, uh, agape love, divine sacrificial love. There is a knowledge base that accompanies uh, that person who does not say, uh, I'm interested in just how you make me feel, but I'm interested in who you are because you are a son or daughter of God. The person who is not about self-getting, but about self-serving. The person who looks beyond himself to see what is around him so he can love like Christ loved. The deeper knowledge of man comes with that. That being said, guys, I wanted to get back to something that Ivan said in the beginning. I would be remiss if I did not speak to this at least just for a minute in that Ivan is the gentleman from San Diego who came up to you and talked about his unworthiness. You know, we have to realize something about God's love. There is nothing so great that we can do that would make God love us more. There is no one failure so big that would make God love us any less. God's love is absolute. It is unchanging. God's love is is not dictated by what we do, but by who we are, his sons and daughters. His love is unconditional, okay? And we have to understand this and appreciate this for what it is, because once we understand that God loves us unconditionally, he loves us not because of our failures or because of our greatness, because he calls us Joe, Chris, Ivan, right? He has called us by name from the beginning of creation. And for this reason, this reason alone, He loves us. That's right. And sometimes it's easy to think that love is gone or it's over when the feelings are not there. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. all of a sudden you've been with this person for a while and then all of a sudden is, well, I, I, we don't love each other anymore. It happens in dating relationships. It happens in, ma- in marriage. Not that I'm married, but I've heard this before. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. And 
that's where what you were saying comes in because God's love for us doesn't change mm -hmm. even when we um, when we're nice and kind mm -hmm. to him as well as when we're not mm -hmm. because like you mentioned earlier I love you not because of how you make me feel but because of who you are mm -hmm. amen Ivan and I think this brings us to the top of page 64 where Christopher West is talking about man as this unreplaceable irrepeatable gift I don't know Chris you want to read that so at the top of page 64, we read, Qualities and attributes are repeatable. Any number of people with the right qualities can ignite that enchanting spark in me. The person, however, is unrepeatable. No person can ever be compared to, measured by, or replaced by another. This is why infidelity, even committed, quote, in the heart, indulging in pornography would be a prime example, is so bitterly painful. It says to the other, you are repeatable. You are replaceable. Hmm. You know, I was, I mentioned those same words to one of my closest friends. And I told him, you know, we are called to love the person, not just the qualities or attributes that they have, because those things are not stable. They come and go. They can change and they can be replaced. Mm -hmm. um, you might be very funny right now, but that person, there's other people out there who are funnier than you. So, and he's like, well, okay, so you're saying that we're called to love the person, but isn't the person a combination of all those qualities mm -hmm. and attributes? Mm -hmm. And I had to ponder on that for a while. Sure. What's really at the heart of this, I think, Ivan, and what John Paul II would want us to see is that we can be funny, we can be witty, all three of us, but there's going to be a distinct character to how you, Ivan, are funny, or Chris, you are funny, or how I am funny. And part of that character comes out uh, based upon our history, who we are and where we come from. <laughs> Let me use myself as an illustration here. Uh, there is only one Joseph Holcraft, who was number nine of 11 children, who was born in Concord, lived in San Ramon, moved to Modesto, then Chico, lived in the northeast of the United States, so on and so forth. All of those experiences make me who I am today. The highs, the lows, the education, all of my personal encounters with family and friends. You come up to me today and you ask me a question about this or that. My response to your question, whatever it may be, will be caught up in the 39 years of my life's existence. It comes out in inflection, tone, the words I use. This is uh, irreplaceable, unrepeatable, okay? And that's the uniqueness of who I am. And God forbid there be another Joel Holcroft running around. <laughs> especially at nine years old. <laughs> yeah, especially at nine years old when I was just looking to survive, right? <laughs> so to get to the heart of the question mm -hmm. is to see that while we might be funny, witty, so on and so forth, uh, there's a uniqueness to how that comes out in light of who I am and my concrete history. Let's say that we were to eliminate all that and we limited to just those qualities of your personality. I love you because you're so funny. I love you because you're so attractive. Then that creates a, a deep doubt, maybe subconsciously, in the woman or the person. Mm -hmm. What if I were not to be this funny a few years from now? What if I lose this shape of my body? Will he still love me? And that's what we're getting at right here. Mm -hmm. What if these things were that's to right. come? Would you still stay? One of the ways that I was able to make sense of this as we talked about it is just as we are not a collection of body parts, 
we are not just a physical gathering of muscles and bones and you know all these other organs we also are not just a collection of personality traits mm-hmm. we are also mm-hmm. not just a collection of attributes that helps define us but if you were to say if you were to throw out you know a dozen adjectives to describe me i'd probably agree yeah that's that's me but that's not the essence of me the essence of me has to get to what you mentioned already joe my essence my my personhood my um my soul that was created by god in addition to okay yeah you're also these adjectives i think that's a really important thing for us to delineate and what this brings together guys is the unity of body and soul because this is what we're talking Mm -hmm. about yes yeah Mm -hmm. going back to something you said ivan and i do think this is really important about yeah i might not be this way three four five years from now yeah the person you fell in love with maybe he or she didn't deal with who he or she was, you know, at the age of nine. And now five, six, seven years down the road, I, I'm dealing with that. Or maybe because I haven't dealt with it, I'm dealing with it. And, and maybe I'm experiencing moments of depression. Maybe I'm experiencing newfound fears that have me isolating myself from, from the community. And then suddenly, you know, my wife says to me, why are you doing this? You weren't doing that five, six, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Yet my wife, no matter how difficult it may be, is still called to love me if, if I'm going to be that person for this I- illustration. And again, this brings us back to that uh, truth concerning history, you know, who we are, where we come from. Would you say there's also an element of a commitment or decision? Oh, absolutely, you make? absolutely. In addition uh, to, for example, ourselves, we desire the greatest good for ourselves, we want to be happy, even when we don't feel it. Mm-hmm. Even those days that we wake up and don't feel good, we don't stop desiring happiness for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, in the same way, when we're in a relationship, just because we don't feel good and about that relationship at a time, you don't stop wishing or desiring heaven for that other person. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a beautiful illustration of the golden rule, huh? I mean, love your neighbor as yourself, and all the more when that neighbor is your spouse. You know, I want to go back to something that um, came out in, in Pope Benedict's paragraph. The, the phrase was sinking into the intoxication mm. of happiness. Mm. Mm. For me, that took me back to some of my more immature understandings of relationships when I was younger mm-hmm. and the ways in which I would elevate a certain person onto mm. a pedestal and think that that person is going to make me happy. That's all I need to do is to get them to notice me. And then if I have a relationship with them, then I will be happy. But what my younger self failed to understand is that they were filling a void that only God can fill. And that is the only love that can satisfy it. I'm glad you brought this up, Chris, actually, because it was a phrase that struck me, the slipping into the intoxication of happiness, especially within the context of selfishness. And the relationship between intoxication and selfishness, this certainly uh, has us talking about what? This book is the love that satisfies. So it has us talking about the sexual urge. And this is where our culture slips into that, that sin of seeing one another as repeatable because they are just nothing more than objects. And this has me going back to a, a last chapter a couple weeks ago. So I, I want to flip to page 55 and just go ahead and, and read this. And, and the, these words just kind of speak for themselves. You know, he says, We are constantly told by the media... We are too fat or too thin, too short or too tall, too flabby or too wrinkled. 
We have too much body hair and not enough. Our eyes, skin, or hair are wrong color. Our faces are too blotchy. Our complexions are not smooth enough. Various parts should be bigger, smaller, rounder, flatter, firmer, softer. In short, we are constantly told to scrutinize virtually every aspect of our anatomy because of the airbrushed ideals exalted by our culture. You know, the way I would summarize this is, yeah, we live in a trophy culture. We buy cars and and homes today, not to drive in or to live in, but to parade them as trophies. And as that paragraph that I just read illustrates, if we are not careful, we will find ourselves falling into that trap that we do not look good enough because we are too tall or too small or too fat or too thin or so on and so forth. And there's a particular challenge that John Paul II offers to all men here. Be careful that our wives do not turn into trophies. We are allowing ourselves to be taken in by this earmark of the culture of death. And remember, when I talk about the culture of death, what I'm saying is a a culture where there is an absence of love. If we are so concerned with what our spouses look like, they're going to become repeatable. And that's the danger that Christopher West is talking about. And you also mentioned earlier that love looks to the eternal mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. Those are the same exact words that Christopher, we, uh, Christopher West uses on page 65. He says, love looks to the eternal. Mm. And that's where the word commitment comes in. We want what's best for the other, not just at this one moment, but what's going to, in the long run, lead for their greater good. We talked about it. It's heaven. So we always seek to do God's will, to see God's will done in this person, mm-hmm. not just now, but forever. Mm-hmm. And I think <clears throat> there's irony in our, our current societal state. Mm-hmm. We, we overuse terms like, I'll love you forever, oh, mm-hmm. forever and always, and these, these mm-hmm. terms of eternal love, when we have less of it than, I don't know, maybe ever in, in man, man's history. I'm not yeah, sure about yeah, that. I'm not yeah. a historian, but we use these terms, and, and that's what we're seeking. So we've got the language, we've got the words, mm-hmm. but we don't have the actions to back them up because we're not thinking in terms of what is best for the other, what is best for you know, this woman that I'm so attracted to. We're only thinking inward. We're turning inward instead. That's right. Like We have the language. Just look at the, our poems, look at our songs. Mm-hmm. The word forever, it's there. I want everything. But then we're somehow afraid. We want to keep the door open. Mm-hmm. And so if it doesn't work, we can walk away. I've had two teachers already, a sociology and a gender and communication teacher, who have openly said that marriage is not worthwhile because it's too painful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so they rather not be committed, be together with a person in case it doesn't work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so if that's just an example of how sometimes fear of the sacrifice that comes from this kind of love can sometimes stop us from loving the other person. Fear, and and in that fear, in, in absence of understanding God's love. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's a reason why Benedict wrote his first encyclical on uh, the nature of God and the fact that God is love. Because once we understand that God loves us for who we are, in spite of our worst, that might uh, inspire or give impetus to uh, open ourselves up to be willing to make that commitment. And as Pope Benedict said in that excerpt, to renounce, to, again, look at this call that we have to sacrifice. 
certainly one of the things that comes out in the next excerpt, guys, is this focus on drawing from the infinite source. If we are going to uh, love our spouses to heaven, then we need to draw from the source that comes to us from heaven. And again, that is the love that is poured out on the cross. So, uh, once again, we have this image that we have to always keep in a rearview mirror, that image of Christ loving his bride, Christ laying his life down for his bride. And there's nothing that is easy about it. There's no one moment where we look at the cross and say, well, that was easy. No. The more we enter into the beauty that is divine sacrificial love, which we see in the icon of the crucifix, the more we will be able to do what God is asking us to do. Such a radical call that Paul puts before us when he says we are called to love our brides as Christ loved his church. This is profound, radically profound. Are we willing? I mean, the family is the cell to society because it is within the family that we discover the beauty of loving in all of the concreteness and particularity of each and every moment of each and every day of our lives, in all of the littleness that we are called to embrace each and every day. This is what it means. Remember, sacrum fitse, to make holy. The word marriage literally means holiness, to be set apart. When we look at marriage, Joe, I'm just really struck by uh, Christopher West uh, speaking about what does it mean if we say that Christ can divorce the church? Because that's what we're saying. If if, yes, if divorce yes. is okay, then the divorce between Christ and the church is okay. And he says this, this is not only unthinkable, it is not only impossible, it is blasphemous. To divorce the church from Christ or Christ from the church, and this is what I really liked, introduces a rupture into the very foundations of of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. So we're getting into that primordial, why marriage is the primordial sacrament. That's a foundation of God's creation. Yes. And it is not a coincidence that Christ performed his first miracle at the wedding feast of Cana, as we discussed our first time together. I mean, we need that new wine. We need that miracle, lest our marriages will fail. And just some closing thoughts. Sure. On, on that note, loving others as Christ loves us. And in some practical terms, we can say that from now on, every form of affection to the other, the person that we love, should reflect that kind of love. Mm-hmm. You are, every kiss should say, it, you are irrepeatable. You are mm-hmm. irre- irreplaceable. Mm-hmm. I love you just as for who you are, mm-hmm. which is the way God loves. That's right, Ivan. Every kiss, every hug, every look, every embrace. When you look at your spouse, when you look at your loved ones, and you say, you are irreplaceable, there's something in both mind and heart that has us loving our spouses and loved ones even more. It's striking. And there's something else here. When you put it in the context of marriages, to see how God has worked providentially in our lives to give us this beautiful, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift, and how this gift is given to us as a means to our salvation, that we might love our spouses even more. And yes, at times, there are crosses along the way, but let us never forget (laughs) that the bride comes to us from Christ through the instrument of the cross. This must always be in view. 
Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.